Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our meditation this morning is our Gospel for the day, Luke 3, verses 7 to 18, as printed in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, in 1931, a 53-year-old housewife in St. Louis self-published a cookbook she called The Joy of Cooking. Through multiple editions over the years, it became and remains the best-selling cookbook in American history, largely because it sticks to what its title proposes. Cooking should not be a burdensome task, a a hobby left only to the highly skilled, or a, a mindless drudgery for the housebound. Instead, it should be accessible to everyone and able to bring everyone joy in creating delicious foods using readily available ingredients and standard kitchen equipment. In other words, a joy. If everyone knew the circumstances that led to the creation and selling of that first cookbook, though, they may have wondered how Irma Rombauer could pretend to find joy in anything. It was not some pet project that she had dreamed about for years. It was actually born of deep loss and great need. The previous year, her husband had committed suicide after a long bout with depression, and he had left her with only $6,000, which even in 1930 would not have lasted her that long. But from her profound sadness and devastation came a book that truly brought joy to thousands and thousands of home cooks who would otherwise have struggled and strained in the kitchen and dreaded preparing a family's meals. With the popularity and ubiquity of the joy of cooking, authors and publishers decided to mimic the title with a seemingly endless series of things titled The Joy of Something. Joy of painting, the joy of junk, you you name it. But there is one title you probably won't find on Amazon or at Barnes & Noble, even though it was quite popular for a short time in first century Palestine. The Joy of Repentance by John the Baptist. It was never a book, of course, but he could have written one that contained his message, and it probably would have sold well for at least a little while, until people began to understand the full implications of what John was preaching. And if he had titled it The Joy of Repentance, some might have questioned whether he really knew what he was talking about. And you, too, might very well be thinking that that title doesn't really work because repentance, well, repentance involves sorrow, sorrow over sin. And and many people might reason that, that since it often requires giving up things that one enjoys, well, then repentance could hardly be joyful. If we were to take today's reading from Luke 3 as a a representative sample of John's preaching, it would certainly seem to bear this criticism out because it begins with a brood of vipers and ends with endlessly burning chaff. But the repentance that John preached and practiced was not unlike Irma Rombauer's book, 
It begins with sorrow and and seeming devastation, but it grows into something wonderful and fulfilling. There is truly joy in repentance. Of course, that only works and only makes sense if you, you understand what joy really is. Joy is the deep, bedrock, state of heart and mind that is more than just a a momentary feeling. Joy occasionally bubbles up and and, and bursts forth to the surface of our lives, and and those are truly wonderful times. But most days it is, is more in the background. It is certainly there mitigating the the miserable and moronic things that happen to us, forming a foundation or a floor for our feelings so that the, the bad can never really overcome the good. That That is the kind of joy that believers are given through faith in Christ. Something certain, something positive, something absolutely good. And the joy that the Apostle Paul wrote so much about in his letter to the Philippians, part of which we read here earlier. But for far too many people, joy is confused with pleasure, making it a momentary and ephemeral thing that that must always be sought and can never just be. And when joy is all about gratifying one's sinful nature and its desires, The idea of repentance bringing joy seems nonsensical. Because how could regretting and turning away from things that you think make you happy result in joy? We see this pretty clearly in our culture today. Repent will perhaps soon end up on that unofficial list of words that can't be used in public. Because our society has so elevated the idea that it's offensive to suggest that anyone might be wrong in what he or she chooses to do, that calling anything sin needs to be, sin that needs to be turned away from. Well, well, then that's just wrong. The irony escapes people there. Telling an unmarried person that he or she should not be enjoying the benefits of marriage with someone or a series of someones he or she's not married to, well, that that's offensive. Reminding someone raised as a Christian that their approving of actions and lifestyles that God has condemned does not mean that God now actually approves of those things. That's offensive suggesting simply that rebelling against the Lord and and rejecting His Word, will, and salvation invites His wrath and punishment. Well, that's offensive. The people John the Baptist preached to had similar issues with his call to repentance. Many of them liked the idea or appearance of repenting much more than the actual thing because they had their own pleasures and practices that they wanted to continue in while still giving the appearance of righteousness. For some of them, even coming to be baptized was part of the spiritual scam they were playing. And that was why John kept saying to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not even think of saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. 
Because I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. We might summarize John's preaching here as quit being hypocritical. You you claim to be devoted to the Lord as Abraham was. And coming here, you, you claim to be repentant. But your lives reveal that you are in fact devoted to yourselves, which means you are actually doing the work of the original viper, the devil. There is no evidence that your minds or lives have actually changed. You have not turned away from your sins, but continue to live in them. John never minced his words. He didn't worry about being politically correct because he was worried about people's eternal salvation, not their opinion of him. So we don't hear nice or timid encouragements here like, you know, you should make better choices, people. Or, hey, try to avoid the eventual unpleasantness that might be coming to you. And certainly not, well, okay, you do whatever seems right to you. Instead, he tells the crowds coming to him and tells everyone still today, flee from the coming wrath. That was what they needed to hear, and so that was what he needed to preach. The fires of hell are real. And all whose trust is not in Christ at the end, whether in death or on judgment day, will tragically end up there. Now, of course, we would probably prefer not to preach the sharp message of the law that John did. He probably didn't even particularly enjoy it. We don't like being disliked, even if we're right. And it can be uncomfortable to condemn things that may end up condemning ourselves. But such harsh and direct language is often necessary to pierce sinners' pride and self-righteousness. Just as those Jews there took pride and confidence in their position as, as good sons of Abraham, and some of us might sometimes take pride in the position as good Lutherans raised in good Christian homes. People need to know the lostness and judgment that awaits them. They need to have their consciences pricked and know the fear of hellfire. Without this, they can never see their need for a Savior. And without that, they can never trust in Jesus as their Savior. So when God's law gets through and confronts the unrepentant with their need for repentance, what follows? The crowds began to ask him, What should we do then? He answered them, Whoever has two shirts should share with the person who has none, and whoever has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said, Teacher, what should we do? To them, he said, Collect no more than what you were authorized to. Soldiers were also asking him, And what should we do? He told them, do not extort money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Now, it may not seem like it, 
But this is actually where the joy of repentance comes in. In calling all these different people to produce fruits in keeping with repentance in these specific ways, John was not placing burdens on them, but was pointing out for them the way to live at peace with their new natures and thus in the joy of fellowship with God. All of these were were practical ways to express their joy in being forgiven of their sins, their joy in being God's children, their joy in His grace and mercy, their joy in knowing how to please Him, and their joy at doing so. That's why all these signs and behaviors showing their new relationship with the Lord are called fruits, They're not pains or obligations of repentance. Leaving your sins behind and newly following God's will instead of your own desires is the way of true freedom, true peace, and true joy. But John was not preaching from any kind of holier-than-thou position. He knew well who and what he was, even if the crowds were confused. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John could be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but someone mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his barn He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then, with many other words, he appealed to them and was preaching good news to the people. John the Baptist was sure of his calling and his message, but he was also humble. He dared not think of himself more highly than he ought, and his humility shows that these lessons are personal for him, not just things he preaches. He recognizes his own unworthiness and makes no claim to glory that is not his. But he happily does what he is called to do. He points people to their Savior. Because that was the goal and purpose of everything that he did and said. He wanted people to be ready to welcome Jesus and to be ready for heaven because their sins had been washed away and left behind. John himself could save no one, but just around the corner was the one who would save everyone. Jesus. It was Jesus who would show himself to be the Christ, the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting centuries for, the one anointed by God as his people's prophet, priest, and king. It was Jesus who would obey his Father's will and and all the law perfectly in our place. It was Jesus who would willingly submit Himself to torture, abuse, injustice, and injury. It was Jesus who would suffer unimaginable agony and abandonment on Calvary's cross and die there as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it was Jesus who would rise again on the third day to pave the way to paradise for all who believe in Him. And so John warned the people to be ready to receive their Redeemer. 
the just around the corner Christ would be meek and humble, but still mighty. And His coming would divide the world sharply into those who trust in Him and those who trust in themselves and their works of merit and devotion. Those who believe will be given the Holy Spirit in a powerful way to do all the work that He calls them to do. But those who reject Him will be winnowed and condemned. John uses sharp and vivid language again. He doesn't want warn the unbelieving that, that Christ will give them a stern talking to or express His disappointment with their actions and life choices. No, He tells them when that when Christ comes, He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But the wheat, the wheat He will gather into His barn into the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem where we will live forever with our Lord, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect joy and peace. And that wheat, that is you and I, we are God's children by faith. We are Christ's repentant disciples and heaven is our home. In the meantime, as we live our lives here on earth, we are privileged to, to serve Him and serve our neighbor as His representatives and to share the Gospel with each other and with anyone we are able. None of that is a drudgery, but a wonder. Our path to forgiveness, not just when we first respond to the Gospel of salvation in Christ, but every day because we sin every day. Our path to forgiveness begins with repentance. But faith takes hold of God's grace and fruits follow. We love to live our new lives as His people. And it is not just our behavior that has changed, but our hearts and our minds and our destiny too. We know and embrace this gift, the joy of repentance. Amen. Please rise. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless in the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time, now, and to all eternity. Amen.